From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, June 18th. I'm Marco Werman. seems that the revolutionary promise of Tahrir Square is, is slipping away. A military power grab in Egypt just as the Muslim Brotherhood claims victory in the presidential election. And later, a young man from the Dominican Republic reflects on how baseball is both a blessing and a curse for boys back home. All of those kids, they drop out of high school and they think that if they play baseball, that means that they're going to make it. And that's not the reality. Those stories and more ahead on the world. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The results are not yet official in Egypt, but the Muslim Brotherhood claims its man won this weekend's presidential runoff election. Mohamed Morsi's rival hasn't conceded, though. Former general and Mubarak official Ahmed Shafiq is holding out hope for a different result. Today, the country's ruling military council vowed to hand over power to a new president by the end of this month. But as Matthew Bell reports from Cairo, the whole exercise is being overshadowed by the military's latest moves to hold on to power. Hundreds of supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood braved 100-degree heat this afternoon to celebrate in Tahrir Square. Where are the journalists, they chanted. The president is here. And they held up a huge banner with Mohamed Morsi's face on it. Are you happy? Happy. I'm happy. I'm very, very happy. So much. A man who gives his name as Mohammed says Morsi will achieve his goals of an Islamic Egypt governed by Sharia law. But Egypt's military seems reluctant to let anyone, not in an army uniform, have any real political power. Last week, the military reinstated a form of martial law, and high court judges, seen as allies of the military, ruled to dissolve parliament. Then, soon after the polls closed last night, the military council issued an edict to limit the powers of a president and grant the military veto power over the process of writing a new constitution. One prominent Egyptian human rights activist said Egypt has now moved from the Arab Spring to a military dictatorship. But even before last night's announcement by the military, much of the giddy excitement that Egyptians showed during previous rounds of voting was already gone. A man in white rubber boots shovels dirt into a donkey cart in the Nile Delta governorate of Sharkia. It's the birthplace of both presidential candidates, ex-Prime Minister Ahmed Shafiq and the Muslim Brotherhood's Mohamed Morsi. The area is mostly rural, socially conservative, and poor. The Brotherhood's candidates did well here during parliamentary elections last year, but Shafiq pulled off a surprise victory in the first round of the presidential vote. At one polling station late yesterday morning, turnout was low. Attitudes among voters polarized. Hannah Gouda, a middle-aged nurse wearing a headscarf, said youth unemployment and security were the most pressing issues for her 
she voted for Ahmed Shafiq. And I'm sure that he's better for, uh, for the economy. Uh, I'm not sure about the MB, the Muslim Brotherhood. For me, I'm a working lady. They might put me in, in home and they, they might order me not to work anymore. Of course, Ahmed Shafi is better for the economy. Many voters seem to be making a similar choice based more on their fears of the rise of political Islam than genuine excitement about Ahmed Shafiq. But the fear goes both ways. As one Muslim Brotherhood supporter explained, the atmosphere is so poisoned it's like a war, with supporters of Shafiq and the former Mubarak regime on one side and the Brotherhood on the other. Factory worker Ihab Hassan said he was worried about Islamists being rounded up and arrested if Shafiq ended up becoming president. Well, I, I don't know what he is in, in his mind, but uh, as I said before, it's war. That war was evident today when a campaign spokesman for Ahmed Shafiq accused the Muslim Brotherhood of trying to hijack the election by declaring early victory. The spokesman for Shafiq said it was not Morsi, but Shafiq who was ahead in the vote count. If projections are correct and Morsi does turn out to be the winner, there's a showdown looming between the Brotherhood and the military. That was clear to voter Anwar Gaber Mohammed after he cast his vote. He's a plumber by profession and an enthusiastic supporter of Morsi, but he worries this whole transition process was rigged. <laughs> I don't believe the military council will ever give Morsi full power as president, he says. The generals are the ones still in control. A spokesman with the Muslim Brotherhood acknowledged that reality today. He told the Reuters news agency that this is the beginning of a very tough path. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Cairo. You can get updates from Matthew via Twitter about what he's seeing on the streets of Cairo. He's at Matthew J. Bell. Critics of the Egyptian military have used the word coup to describe how the generals have grabbed extra powers in recent days. Stephen Cook says that's debatable. Cook is a senior fellow for Middle Eastern Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. The dissolution of parliament is certainly a power that the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces does not have, although they were clearly working off of the decision of Egypt's Supreme Constitutional Court, which had declared the election of a third of the seats in the parliament null and void. The military then followed on with a constitutional decree giving itself a whole range of new powers. So in that sense, it certainly looks a lot like a coup. But I think in contrast, what the military is trying to do is to exit politics in as safe a manner as it possibly can from their own perspective. Mm. Uh, this was a hedge against the presidency of Mohamed Morsi. And the SCAF, the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, wants to leave politics with its economic interests intact and with its exalted status in the Egyptian political system intact. They weren't sure that they would get that from Morsi after trying to negotiate this with some political force. And as a result, they've issued this decree. Right. So now the uh, Supreme Council of Armed Forces say they'll hand over power to the newly elected president, which does appear to be Mohammed Morsi of the Muslim Brotherhood. But after yesterday's declaration, how much power is left to hand to a new president? Well, that's exactly right. The military was clearly saying that it will not subordinate itself to the new president, a civilian, and certainly if Morsi does turn out to be the winner, certainly the Muslim Brotherhood, which the military has been at odds with 
for the better part of the last 60 years. Uh, the decree says that the president cannot declare war without the approval of the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces. The Supreme Council of the Armed Forces retains the right to make its own decisions about Egypt's security and defense policy. So they really have done what they could to gut the president of a variety of powers that are related directly to the military. And this way, they insulate themselves from whatever a civilian might try to do to the presidency and retain power and influence for themselves in the political system. And retaining that power and dissolving uh, Egypt's parliament yesterday, I mean, is there any legal basis for these actions? There's none, although that obviously hasn't prevented them from doing it. There is a long history of militaries in the Middle East, not just in Egypt, going beyond uh, their constitutional or legal writ to get precisely what they want. They've now said that they will rerun elections in the early fall. They are clearly pointing to the Supreme Constitutional Court's decision nullifying a third of the seats. And in fact, the chairman of the Supreme Constitutional Court said without those seats, the parliament couldn't possibly function. So that's the basis. But the constitutional declaration that the military itself issued in March 2011 says nothing about their ability to dissolve parliament. At best, it says that it can adjourn the parliament. I mean, this has got to be a, a somber development for the revolutionaries who, who were out there in Tahrir Square last year and removed Mubarak from power, essentially. I, I think it absolutely is. It seems that the revolutionary promise of Tahrir Square is, is slipping away. This is not what anyone imagined during the, the heady days of the uprising. There were great hopes for a, a more democratic Egypt. Everybody, including the revolutionaries, made a lot of mistakes during the last 16 months. And we are back at this familiar dynamic pitting the forces of the old regime or, or the military against the Muslim Brotherhood. Those aren't the only two relevant political forces in the political arena, but clearly the strongest. Stephen Cook, Senior Fellow for Middle Eastern Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Thanks very much. My pleasure. China is celebrating two milestones for its space program. On Saturday, the Chinese sent their first female astronaut into orbit. Today, the capsule carrying that astronaut and two male colleagues docked with an orbiting module. The Chinese had never done that before either. It's all part of China's preparations to have a permanent manned space station by 2020. The world's Mary Kay Magstad is in Beijing. She says China is trying to catch up to the Russian and American space programs. Back in the early 60s, China was recuperating, recovering from the Great Leap Forward and the three years of famine that followed that killed almost 40 million people. And then after that came the Cultural Revolution, which was another 10 lost years where the economy basically contracted. China really started to come into its own over the last 30 years of economic reform and opening up. And I think for China, having a space program is largely about national prestige and international prestige. So even though it's 40 or 50 years late, it is only the third country to be able to put people into space and to bring them back safely. So the other significant thing about this mission, Mary Kay, that we mentioned is uh, the, the first woman astronaut that China ha has presented, Liu Yang. Uh, what can you tell us about Ms. Liu and what is she going to be doing? She's 33 years old. She's a former fighter pilot. She's with two male colleagues who are both in their 40s. It's a 13-day mission. When the there was the automated docking, Ms. Liu stayed behind in case of emergency for the initial uh, stage and then joined her colleagues in the Tiangong Space Lab, which means uh, Sky Palace. 
And I think for China and certainly for the way this is being played in the Chinese state-run media, this is just another step forward to show that uh, China is that confident of its space program, that mm. it can put a woman into space along with the guys. So there was Mir, the Russian space station. The U.S. Uh, has been involved in the International Space Station. And now the Chinese are off and running with, with their own project. Why are the Chinese not part of the International Space Station? Well, in fact, uh, there was an act of Congress which blocked the Chinese from being part of the International Space Station. They feared that there would be technology transfers that could help China with asymmetrical warfare should the U.S. and China ever be on opposite sides of a war in the future. So China decided, OK, well, fine, we're going to have our own space station. It's going to be much smaller than the International Space Station, but we're going to move ahead. We'll have it by 2020. And ironically, the International Space Station may be decommissioned by 2020, so China may be the only one out there by then. So what does this space success, if we can call it that this weekend, uh, represent for China right now? Uh, And is the central government in China making hay out of it? Absolutely making hay. The Chinese state-run media are running with this in a way that they've run with few other stories since the Olympics in 2008. It's an achievement that they believe It reflects great uh, national and international prestige. One of the Chinese newspapers, the Global Times, which is under the People's Daily umbrella, the People's Daily is the Communist Party newspaper, had the headline, Confused Youth Should Look Up to the Shenzhou Spirit. And one of the lines said, There are some typical characteristics of China's aerospace projects, being steady and consistent, enduring humiliation and bearing responsibility, showing absolute respect for science, and being indifferent toward fame and fortune. And I think the party leaders are having a bit of an issue with young people and how irreverent they can be toward authority and toward the party, particularly in this year of one of the biggest crises and scandals in the party in in decades and also a leadership transition. So it's really nice to have a positive moment around which to gather sort of nationalistic, patriotic sentiment. Yeah. Mary Kay, do you happen to know what they're going to be eating up there in space? Um, I don't know exactly, no. The, the joke is that the International Space Station will be sending out to the Chinese Space Station to take out. <laughs> Yo, pizza! <laughs> Not tonight. All right. The world's Mary Kay Mag said, in Beijing, thank you so much. Thank you, Marco. Still ahead, the next big thing in pop music, sea shanties. You're listening to The World on PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, Global Reach, Local Impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Musical styles have a way of evolving. They change with the times. But musicians and composers may have less to do with that process than you'd think. That's a contention of some British scientists who conducted an unusual experiment. The world's Ritu Chatterjee has a story. The experiment was done using what the researchers call a Darwinian music machine. It's a computer program designed by evolutionary biologist Armand Leroy of Imperial College London and his colleagues. Leroy says the program creates a set of, or you could call it a population, of short medleys. Little songs of about eight seconds long, and they're just random bits of noise. Okay, now hold your ears. Those random bits of noise sound something like this. Leroy says the program started off with a population of about 100 such tunes. 
He and his colleagues then posted those tunes on a website and invited people to rate each tune on a five-point scale, ranging from I can't stand it to I love it. As people rated the music, the program picked the most popular medleys and allowed them to procreate. These songs, they get together, they have sex, as it were, the code gets mixed up, and then they have baby songs. The baby songs sound similar to their parents and yet are distinct musical entities. In the experiment, those babies were then sent back online and rated by the public. The process continued for generation after generation. So you have a system that is directly analogous to natural selection in organisms, and so the population evolves. In organisms, natural selection drives evolution. In this case, consumer choice was the selective force. And the striking thing, says Leroy, is how quickly the noise turned into music. Even within a couple dozen generations, we found that they were already much, much more musical. And by five, six hundred generations, they were sounding really good. Take, for example, the cacophonous medley you heard a little while ago. Here's how it sounded after 150 generations. At 400 generations, it evolved into this. And here's the tune after 600 generations of selection and reproduction. Again, study author Armand Leroy. Here, in effect, we're evolving music out of noise. But there's no creator there. There's no composer. It's just pure market forces, as it were, pure consumer choice that is doing it. So what's the point of this experiment? Well, Leroy says people generally think that musical styles and genres are determined by composers and musicians. You know, there's the Beatles and then there's Nirvana. It's all one bunch of musical geniuses handing the baton down to the next set of musical geniuses. But what we forget is that the public are exerting choice upon this. And that choice in itself is a creative force. In other words, it's the public that chooses which songs succeed in the marketplace and go on to influence the next generation of artists. Daniel Levitin is a neuroscientist at McGill University and the author of the book The World in Six Songs, How the Musical Brain Created Human Nature. Levitin says the new study is a compelling illustration of the role of consumers in shaping music. But, he says, the experiment doesn't represent the real world. Because musicians also shape what the audience finds pleasing. In the real world, the composer may just draw a line and say, no, I think this is better and I'm going to stick with it. And, you know, maybe people won't like it now, but maybe they'll come around. Take, for example, he says, the band The Talking Heads. Their first few records didn't do very well and they didn't change anything. They just kept doing what they were doing. And suddenly the whole world comes around to them and says, yeah, you, you were right. That, that's a good sound. We love it now. So, says Levitin, when it comes to musical evolution, yes, natural selection is important. But you can't dismiss the role of the creator. For the world, I'm Ritu Chatterjee. The new study appears in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. You can listen to more songs from the experiment and even participate in the ongoing study. We've got links at theworld.org.
Summer vacation begins for students this week here in Boston. One group of 11th graders is looking forward not just to some time off, but also to becoming published authors. Fifteen young immigrants from places like Sudan, Albania, and Colombia wrote essays reflecting on the American dream, and their work is featured in a new book called So What Now? The world's Jason Margolis caught up with one student from the Dominican Republic. Edwin Soto moved to Boston three years ago. He's now 17 and finishing his junior year of high school. His first day of class was a tough transition. When I came here, I didn't speak any English. Actually, on the first day of school, I didn't even know what was a notebook or nothing. Today, Soto is a charismatic, engaging young man. And he's mastered English well enough to be published. In his essay, Soto focuses on a sport that is cherished in both the U.S. and the Dominican Republic, baseball. I'm almost the number one fan of baseball. My favorite player is Alex Rodriguez and Pedro Martinez. That's my favorite. Soto has had a chance to go to Yankee Stadium to see A-Rod play. And while Soto says he loves rooting for players with Dominican roots, he writes in his essay that too many boys back home have unrealistic expectations of becoming the next A-Rod or Pedro Martinez. I still love baseball, but... In some ways, I actually hate it because maybe not in here in the United States, but in my country, I think that's the major cause that the country is the way it is. All of those kids, they drop, drop out of high school and they think that if they play baseball, that means that they're going to make it and that's not the reality. Soto says in the United States, boys can play in school, then college. If they don't make it professionally, they have other options. He says it doesn't work that way for boys back in the Dominican. They got released without nothing, just their dreams. In many ways, Soto is already living his American dream. In his essay, Soto writes about everyday luxuries, such as a warm shower. I asked him if he felt that Americans take these little things for granted. I never hear someone saying that, like, an American saying that they are glad to have hot water, electricity, all those things. They can even go and watch a NBA game or baseball game anytime they want. But in Dominican Republic or other countries, that's a dream to people. Soto says he'd like to go to college next year, then maybe become a firefighter. Baseball is not his dream. My dream is to have a successful life, maybe a career or a job to sustain my family and get enough money so I, so I can be happy. 17-year-old Edwin Soto speaking with the world's Jason Margolis. You can read Soto's essay at theworld.org. His story is part of a new publication called So What Now? A series of reflections on the American dream. The project is a collaboration between Boston International High School and 826 Boston, a nonprofit group that helps young, under-resourced students explore creative writing. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, a group of Englishmen who love to sing sea shanties and love their village. This is what it's all about, is a better community, better all your friends together, and living and working in a little village. The children's children grew up together, and our children's children have grown up together, and it's just absolutely fantastic. That story ahead on The World. 
PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Greece is a little closer to having a new government, and perhaps a little closer to staying in the Euro Club. The center-right New Democracy Party got the most votes in elections yesterday. It favors sticking to the bailout and austerity plan for Greece, though with some necessary changes. But to do so, it needs to install a new governing coalition and get the international community to bend a little. Here's more from the world's Clark Boyd in Athens. Life in the Greek capital went on as usual today. The traffic was heavy. The warm sun beat down. People, those who still have jobs, went to work. ATMs dispensed euros. New democracy leader Antonis Samaras wants to keep Greece in the eurozone. Here's what he said to the Greek president as he officially received his mandate to form a government today. Mr. President, I will immediately attempt to form a long-term national salvation government, Samaras said, with the parties that believe in the European perspective and the euro. Samaras said Greece would keep its commitments, but try to convince European leaders to give Greece more time to pay back its debts. Greeks, Samaras went on, need to be relieved of this tortuous reality today, with unemployment and the incredible difficulties that every Greek family is going through. New Democracy will try to form a coalition with two left-leaning parties. If that happens, the coalition would have a majority in parliament. Second place Syriza said today it won't participate, but will remain in opposition. The party opposes the European bailout terms and argues that the agreement should be thrown out completely. Syriza MP George Stathakis says his party deserves a lot of credit, despite finishing second. New Democracy and uh, many other parties had shifted towards the agenda of Syriza that uh, the existing agreement cannot be fulfilled, cannot be applied. So we practically think that the New Democracy now has the space to renegotiate the best they can. But there are many here who think that any new Greek government, once formed, will be fragile and ill-equipped to govern or negotiate. Yanis Varoufakis is a Greek economist. When I ask him if the situation in Greece is bad, he says... It's worse than that. Greece is ungovernable. It is a social economy that is imploding. And therefore, even if the best politicians from the universe descended upon Greece, I don't think they would have much of a chance of shifting this uh, debacle and putting it in the right direction. At polling stations around Athens yesterday, volunteers stamped the envelopes that held official ballots. After they voted, I asked people, what is the biggest task facing a new Greek government? As per uh, the um, request of our um, European partners, we have cut back on public spending, and we have to deal with corruption and tax evasion. For me, it's the education, because I think that without education, uh, a nation cannot go further. Every educational system, every educational institute all over Greece has problems. Neither of those two voters would say who they voted for. For its part, Europe wants Greece to stay focused on its agreements and on internal structural reforms. Some think that's a luxury the country can't afford right now, given the state of the economy. First, you need to arrest the freefall. Once the freefall is arrested, then we can talk about reforms. 
Again, economist Yanis Varoufakis. We can plan for reforms right now, and it's, it would be sensible to do that. But to expect that, firstly, we, we can implement them, and secondly, that they would make a difference, it's a bit like the Titanic having hit the iceberg. It's leaking water everywhere, and the captain and his, his officers debating the efficiency of its engines. Also, first things first, before anything can move forward, Greek politicians have to actually form a government. For The World, this is Clark Boyd in Athens. So Greece looks set to stay on the austerity path. France, on the other hand, is looking to stimulate growth through spending. That's a mandate anyway of France's new socialist president, François Hollande, and now he's got parliament on his side. Over the weekend, Hollande's socialist party won big in France's parliamentary elections. It now controls an outright majority of the legislative seats. Pierre Aski is the co-founder of the Paris-based political analysis website Rue 89. François Hollande is now in a strong position, Pierre, to push against the idea of budget cuts demanded by Germany. And in fact, Greece and other countries are apparently saying that those cuts are worsening their financial situation by stifling growth. So with the socialists having one big in France, how will Hollande's position now play out in Europe? Well, he needed first to have a strong base in France, and that's what he got. He won the presidential election uh, last month, and now with this parliamentary big success, he is in control of every power in France. So this gives him a very strong hand and a mandate to go and negotiate in the European scene. It's very timely because the European leaders are about to meet at the end of the month for a very crucial meeting in which the whole debate about growth and austerity will be on the table. And at the moment, you you have a big gap between Chancellor Merkel of Germany on one side and President Hollande of France on the other. Mm. But I'm almost convinced that there will be a compromise, that the leaders of Europe at this stage cannot afford to end up this meeting with contradictory positions. Well, we remember the close relationship between Angela Merkel and Nicolas Sarkozy. I mean, for example, they were all about balanced budgets. Uh, But the first thing Hollande is going to try to do is uh, delay any balanced budget in France until 2017. What do you think are going to be the big stumbling blocks uh, in terms of Hollande kind of having the same entente with Merkel that uh, Sarkozy had? You know, European politics is all about give and take. Uh, So if uh, Hollande wants to take, that means to uh, get the European funds to support growth, he will have to give. And he will have to give both in terms of his promise to reach a balanced budget uh, within the next few years, but also in terms of more integration on the political level. And I think that's what's on the table at the moment, is sharing the burden both of the debt and trying to stimulate the economies again. But on the other side, we need to integrate more politically and avoid the kind of situation that we've had in the past where divergent economies within the Eurozone have almost rocked the boat. You know, it's interesting. The socialists are in power right now in France, uh, but there were some gains made by the far right uh, in France as well as Greece in this weekend's election. Is that all significant for you? Of course, this is the the political background to the whole economic situation of Europe at the moment. The austerity measures are pushing more and more big shift in European politics, particularly as uh, European politics uh, have moved towards a larger disengagement of the state. And you can see in the result of the French elections that the extreme right have made the biggest gains in the regions where public service has weakened. And you can see that it all leads to a single situation 
no more trust in the political system, we go to the extremes. And that's a very scary situation. And I think that's pushing a lot of pressure on the European leaders for their meeting next week. And Pierre, let me ask you about one more political trend in French elections. In this weekend's parliamentary election, French expatriates were given the chance for the first time to vote for local representatives to the French Assembly. And uh, 11 foreign districts were created for those expatriates, and eight out of those 11 new districts elected left-wing candidates, including for the U.S. and Canada, where the trend had been conservative until now. Why do you think there was this big swing from right to left? First of all, as you said, it's the first time the expatriates were given a chance to elect representatives in the lower house. I think two things happened. One is that the turnout was very low, and probably left-wing voters were motivated by the events in France and the shift of politics in France to go to the polls. The other, I would say, maybe that's a personal guess, is that I think the period of Nicolas Sarkozy has not been very good for the self-esteem of the French. I think they've uh, felt that he was not representing the nation very well. And I think a lot of people have punished the right, most likely by not voting for Mm. some of its candidates. And if you take the example of the U.S., the right-wing candidate was uh, Frédéric Lefebvre, a former minister very close to Sarkozy, who is not being taken very seriously by the electorate. And I think he was punished for that. Pierre Aski with the political analysis website RU89. Thank you very much. Thank you. Saudi Arabia has a new heir to the throne. King Abdullah today named his half-brother Prince Salman as the new crown prince. The previous heir was buried yesterday. Crown Prince Nayef died in Geneva recently. He was in his late 70s and was crown prince for only eight months. Author and journalist Thomas Lippmann has covered the Middle East for more than 30 years. He says the prince who just died was a powerful man. Nayef was one of the most senior sons of the founding king of Saudi Arabia, King Abdulaziz bin Saud. He was an intimate part of the closely held ruling circle for the past 40 years and had been minister of interior since the 1970s. He was also one of the seven princes known as the Suderi Seven because they were the sons of King Abdulaziz's favorite wife. Nayef had a reputation as a no-nonsense law enforcement officer. He controlled the police and the security forces and through them wielded an awful lot of power in the kingdom. Now, Prince Nayef had been the interior minister of Saudi Arabia since 1975. Uh, he led the crackdown, uh, some Americans may remember, on al-Qaeda in Saudi Arabia after 9-11. But he was also a conservative Muslim, kind of dedicated to the traditions of Wahhabism, which is the same doctrine that spawned Osama bin Laden. Was it a complex equation for Prince Nayef, policing well, a group of people who had uh, he had some loose affinity with? Look, pretty much everybody in Saudi Arabia is a conservative Muslim. And certainly pretty much everybody in the ruling family. The interconnection between the type of conservative Islam sponsored by Saudi Arabia and the jihadist violence that has erupted is a long, complicated story. But Nayef was responsible for suppressing and controlling the extremist uprising that broke out in the kingdom in 2003. And remember that the first target 
of Al Qaeda and its and its allies and like-minded rebels was the House of Saud itself, the royal family itself. So they didn't take any nonsense from the Al Qaeda people. And Nayef and his son Mohammed bin Nayef were the instruments of the crackdown. Prince Nayef was also the first Saudi official to publicly confirm that 15 of the 19 hijackers on 9/11 were Saudi. Why was he willing to make this statement? But he was also the first and most prominent Saudi to say that the Zionists were responsible for 9-11. So how do you sort that out? I mean, he's saying... Well, you can't sort sort that out except to say that Nayef was not the senior Saudi prince to whom one looked for, shall we say, rational and complicated analysis of events. He was a cop. There's been a lot of talk about Prince Salman. Who is he? Prince Salman is one of the most senior princes. He was a full brother of Prince Nayef. Salman was the governor of Riyadh and the province of Riyadh for many, many years and became the defense minister upon the death of his brother last year. And what do Saudis think of Prince Salman? Well, does it make a difference? it, It doesn't make much difference. He's not a reviled figure. He's not unpopular, as far as I know. Uh, He's very much part of the uh, inner circle of the ruling establishment. And he seems to be a sort of good-natured fellow, except when he's not. Mm. And when is he not? When there's any kind of threat or challenge to the ruling family. He has a narrow range of tolerance for uh, differences of opinion on the subject of who should run the country and the scope of that of, of their authority. If Salman becomes king, how is that going to shape U.S.-Saudi relations, do you think? I don't see much effect on the relations. U.S.-Saudi relations have weathered every difference in opinion and every crisis since the 1940s. The two countries need each other. Um, and absent some kind of completely unpredictable set of events, I don't see that there's going to be much difference. The strategic outlines of the relationship are likely to remain stable, and they're pretty well set. Thomas Lippman with the Middle East Institute. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Tomorrow on The World, a Syrian Christian from the embattled city of Homs. He lives in Massachusetts, but his thoughts are on Syria. It takes me like every day two, three hours just to go through the news, make the phone calls, and it's really emotionally, it kills you. His relatives and homes may be twice endangered as civilians and as Christians. His story, tomorrow on The World. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from WGBH, producer of Antiques Roadshow, with family heirlooms, yard sale bargains, and long-lost items salvaged from attics and basements. Experts reveal the fascinating stories behind these hidden treasures, Mondays at 8, 7 Central, on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. More than 300 singers from several nations gathered for an international sea shanty festival over the weekend. Sea shanties are rhythmic songs traditionally sung by sailors and fishermen during their work out at sea. One of the main attractions at the festival in Falmouth, England, was the group Fisherman's Friends. It's credited with starting a revival of this musical genre. Here's the group's version of the famous river shanty, Shenandoah. Oh, Shenandoah, I love your daughter. Away, my rolling river. 
Before we hear more of Fisherman's Friends' music, we want to focus on where the group is from. That's an important part of their story. So for our GeoQuiz today, we want you to name the place. It's an old fishing village in Cornwall near the southwestern tip of England. The town's pier dates back to Henry VIII. The Cornish village is also known for its quaint and narrow streets. One of them is so narrow, it's called Squeezy Belly Alley. PBS viewers might recognize the town as a setting for the Doc Martin TV series. If you happen to visit on a Friday night this summer, you might be able to hear the fishermen's friends perform near the Old Harbor. We're back with the name of this Cornish fishing village just as soon as this classic shanty ends. Shenandoah, the white mulatto, we are bound away from this world of misery. Time's up. The village in Cornwall where the fishermen's friends hail from is called Port Isaac. The group's debut CD is fittingly called Port Isaac's Fisherman's Friends. Reporter Demay Roberts met the singers recently. When I first heard the Fisherman's Friends, I was struck by the wall of sound that marks their harmonies. Come all you no-hopers, you jokers and rogues. We're on the road to nowhere, let's find out where it goes. It might be a ladder to the stars, who knows? Come all you no-hopers, you jokers and Most of the men grew up together in the Cornish village of Port Isaac. They started singing Christmas carols and sea shanties just for fun, but they soon became so popular they were drawing thousands to their free summer concerts. I met with eight members of the group at their headquarters, the Golden Lion Pub near the Old Harbor, which the town calls the Platte. My name's Julian Brown, and I'm a fisherman. I'm John MacDonald. I'm a builder in this village. Uh, Billy Hawkins. I ran the pottery in Port Isaac. John Brown. I live in the village. Part-time fisherman. Trevor Grills, a builder. Born in the village. Live in the village. Everything in the village. I'm John Nethbridge, and I'm the only one that doesn't live in the village. I live in St. Coo, about four miles away. Peter Rowe, old and retired. I'm John Cleave. I'm Peter's next-door neighbour, so I look after him. At 78, Peter Rowe is the elder statesman of the group. He says men in Cornwall love to sing. The Cornish do have a tradition, and you can go to an early small town, big town, and find a group of guys who are just as good as us. John Cleave says most of them were in choirs when they were growing up. The group doesn't have a director. Usually someone sings a chorus or two. And within 10 minutes you can tell if everyone else wants to sing it or not. (laughs) It's a bit of an acid test, and, you know, sometimes it can take a little longer to to get through. Sometimes you pick songs up right away, and sometimes it's readily apparent that you should never have brought this song along, and I'll get my coat then. (laughs) What they do agree on, says John Brown, is the type of music. All our sea shanties are to do with the sea and uh, and to work with holding our sails, holding up the anchor up, and uh, various little jobs on board. But it would usually be a gang of people working together. Peter Rowe demonstrates a song about winches on a sailing ship. Stamp and go is uh, pulling and stamping at the same time to get your balance right. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Pulling and stamp and go. Stamp and go. Stamp and go. You're pulling on a rope, see, to whatever act you're taking. We're making money with this sound. Rolling winches, oh. Rolling down and stamp and go. Rolling winches, oh. Woo! Rolling down and stamp and go, rolling witches all. 
In the hold this gear must go. Rattle and winches, oh. For Mr. Mate has told me so. Rattle and winches, oh. Rattle and down and stamp and go. Rattle and winches, oh. Rattle and down and stamp and go. Rattle and winches, oh. The songs may be upbeat, but they document the real danger fishermen face, says John Brown. Fishing still the most dangerous occupation in the world. Obviously, you fall overside, and if you haven't got a life jacket on, within 10 minutes, you will drown. But uh, you could drown in a harbour. If you can't grab hold of something, you'll, you'll, be, you'll, be, you'll drown in 10 minutes. His brother, Julian Brown, says that a quota system for fish forces the fishermen to throw dead fish back into the ocean. He worries about the decline of the industry. Well, there just isn't enough money to cover the cost. The price of fuel is rising all the time, which makes it more difficult. And with the restrictions about what you can land, that makes it difficult. No, it's, uh, for the last 20 or 30 years, it's just been on a downward spiral. Do you worry that your son is going into this? That's why I try to keep pushing him away. Yet the men say their children don't seem eager to leave Port Isaac, and neither are they, says John Brown. We've all lived here for the best part of 50 years, and none of us have wanted to move away, or we've moved away but always come back. And uh, you look at the window there, and it's, this is what it's all about. It's a better community, but all your friends together, and living and working in a little village. And children's children have grown up together, and our children's children have grown up together, and it's just absolutely fantastic. Still, their popularity often draws the fishermen's friends away from home. Last year, they signed on with the Universal Music Group. Then they performed at the prestigious Royal Festival and Royal Albert Halls in London, as well as the world-famous Glastonbury Festival. Trevor Grill says they never expected this. When we first started, we said we'll give it two years, and it's kind of going on. It's a bit like being on the crest of a wave, like surfing, I imagine it. You're on the top of the wave, and you're just going along with it. We'll just take it as far as it goes. Are you queuing a Beach Boys song, Trevor? For <laughs> <laughs> we sail on the sloop John B, my grandpappy and me, over the seven seas we did the Fisherman's Friends ride that wave this summer, giving concerts in Port Isaac and around England. For the world, I'm Dime Roberts, Port Isaac. Well, I feel so broke up. Oh, yeah. I want to go home. So hoist up the John B. Hoist up the John B. See how the mainsail sails. Oh, for the captain ashore, let me go home. I want to go you can see picturesque pictures of the fishermen friends and their village of Port Isaac. We have a slideshow at theworld.org. That's our program today. Our Boston team includes Stephen Snyder and Mary Lou Ward. In London are Rob Hugh-Jones, Ian Rosser, and Rahul Joglaker. The world's engineers are Louis Cronin, Robin Moore, Tina Toby, and Mike Wilkins. Our online team is led by Stephen Davey with Michael Rass and Manya Gupta. The executive producer of The World is Andrew Sussman. You can follow us on Twitter at PRI The World. Follow me too at Marco Werman. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, thanks for listening. So hoist up the John B. Hoist up the John B. See how the mainsail sails. Oh, for the captain ashore, let me go home. I want to go home. Let me go home.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, MacFound.org. PRI, Public Radio International.